It's a massive difference. And that connection is what I saw somebody that the industry understands really well. I saw Steve Jobs do that really well. He, he took phenomenal, he took awesome people, but inspired them to do phenomenal things that they didn't think they were capable of. And he didn't do it by saying, you know, do this, do this, do this. Obviously, he put unreasonable deadlines, but he inspired them on how they were changing the world. That was touching the heart, right? If you can do that in your own way, that is Welcome to the Jess Larson Show, where I interview innovators and leaders. Today on the show, I've got Chet Kapoor. Chet, thanks for doing this. Thank you, Jess. It's a pleasure. So um, we've done this once already, but due to some technical difficulties, I get the pleasure of, of uh, getting some more of your time. So I wish I could say I was disappointed. I'm, I'm sad to use your time out twice, but I'm excited to get to have another conversation. Well, it was, as we were, as we were discussing before, right? It was, it was a blast to have the conversation. You're a great interviewer. And so I'm, I've been looking forward to it. So it, it, this is going to be great. Let's do a quick, let's do a quick overview on your career. And then I know what questions I want to ask next. So really quickly, it, it, and I'll go through it very quickly. I'm born and brought up in Calcutta, read a book called The Little Kingdom about uh, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. It was done by a gentleman by the name of Mike Moritz, who was a Times reporter and subsequently went off, came up and ran uh, Sequoia Capital and uh, was very intrigued by the book and said, I wanted to come to work for Steve Jobs, came to the States, started working for Next, his new company, not Apple, and, and have always remained in generally the distributed computing space right? Had my own business while I was going to school, went and joined a company called Active Software, where was part of the team that took it public. It actually created a new industry called Enterprise Architecture Integration, which was great. And then I joined BEA, did the same thing there, and joined Apogee, which was 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 one of the most rewarding labors of love that I've ever had. I was there for a decade, pre, pre-product, pre-revenue, renamed the company, pivoted a couple of times, took it public, and then Google bought us, was at Google for two or three years great time at Google, just phenomenal time at Google. But I felt like I had not, I had not f- fulfilled this uh, concept called durability, right? Or creating a durable business, right? Which is some combination of a PNL uh, and culture, bringing it all together. And so had the itch to go off and do it. I chose to pick data stacks. That was two and a half years ago. And data stack is, uh, is turned around and operating in every which way possible. And having a lot of fun doing it. A couple of quick details in there. I don't know if I asked this. Did you join Apogee as CEO? It was, it was, a, it was a company called Sonoa Systems. It was two people in Santa Clara and 48 people in Bangalore. Sonoa was formed in, in Santa Clara and Bangalore on the same day, but the engineering team was entirely there. And so the reason we called it Apogee was two years later, we actually pivoted the entire company and the technology. And so we, the, the name of the product that we had as a cloud service, a cloud service, mark you, in 2009, was, you know, long before anybody was thinking about AWS and cloud, was called Apogee. So we decided to rename the company as what we were calling the service. So, and, and do I remember the name numbers right? Was that 625 million, the sale to Google? 640. 640, okay. Um, you know, I don't know if we talked much about this on our interview before, but what were the emotions like after all the papers were signed and you had really, you know, achieved such a, you know, such a thing that people in the industry look for so much. What was that experience like? I'll give you, I'll give you the, uh, I'll give you two sides of this. So I'll, I'll give you two. One is, it is absolutely spectacular 
to uh, stand in the middle of Times Square and watch 60% of Times Square real estate actually flash Apogee colors and Apogee logo. It is, uh, it is a moment in your life that you will never, ever forget, right? That moment is captured with all the work from hundreds of people trying to get there. When we, when we were, after we were public and we had a lot of suitors of people who wanted to come in actually because we were valuable, we were, we had very valuable customers. We had a great product and a phenomenal team. We actually made a list and we said, who would, if there was a company that we could choose to be acquired by, who would it be? And obviously we had Google on top of the list. So why? Because you're solving intergalactic problems and you know, they're all geeks, right? It kind of fits our profile. So when we were, when, and Google was late to the party, but we got there and Diane was very gracious and we did the deal. It felt like, um, it, you know, here's what it felt like. We felt really happy that it was Google because we, it seemed like in our minds, we chose Google and they chose us. It wasn't just them choosing us, number one. But the second thing is we felt that we were not done. We were on a mission, right? So you don't, when you go on, I, a lot of people forget this, right? A lot of people forget that an IPO or an acquisition it's not the end of the road. It's an opportunity to accelerate further. And that's the other part of this. It's not, the moment is to be celebrated, but don't forget, all you're doing is you have to continue to be on the mission. So at, at Google for two years, we still ran Apogee and made it a big business. And so the, the takeaway from all this is there are many moments along the way that you will enjoy, but please don't realize and don't fool yourself in believing that the IPO is an end goal or being acquired is an end goal. It is actually serving your developers and enterprises that make it makes a difference. So let me ask a different question then. You go to Google, you guys continue to drastically ramp up the business. What was going on for you when you realized, oh, I think I'm ready for, I think I'm ready for the new challenge. So um, I think I'm ready to, to make a change. I absolutely believed that Google would be a place um, that I would spend at least a decade, maybe even more. I had a chance and, and all the Googlers, including Sundar, were very gracious with their time, right? I got a chance to get to know the company beyond just Google Cloud. And so in, after two years, it was very clear. The original plan was for me to transition out of Apogee in the first nine months. And we actually did it for two years for many good reasons. And then once I transitioned Apogee, found a replacement, made sure that it was actually ramped up and driving it. I actually explored running education at Google and did that for quite a few months. It was great experience, right? Again, back to we don't learn the way we live, right? And you're doing it at Google, right? Where else in the world can you get this combination? And so I did that for a while. It was really interesting, but I felt like I had this gravitational, like this, just this pull where you feel like, you know, you have some unfinished business to do this, create this durable business in the world that an Apogee will always be my baby. Whenever I look at the logo, I talk to customers, they're like, you're the Apogee guy, right? And I'm really proud that we created an industry and we created a product and the brand and people are really happy. But I felt like I was not done yet. And so, you know, had a chance to, I was lucky enough to look at a bunch of different opportunities and, and we picked data stacks. Well, I am... I want to talk more about data stacks. Maybe the first place I want to talk about, though, is your principles of leadership and innovation. You know, I was telling you before we started the show, on the top of my daily ABCs list, like when I open up my Apple notes where my ABCs are, there's a pin, there's a note pinned to the top, everybody, that's, that says, check Kapoor podcast notes, be me, touch their hearts, lead from the heart. Can you, can you tell people about, about why I might have written that down? 
Yeah, it was, you know, we, uh, for, for the audience, right, we had, we actually did a podcast before and the sound quality was not as good. In fact, Jess and myself are just talking about, we'll do a transcript. He'll do a transcript and make it available to people because it's actually, it, it was, it was really good. Yeah, we'll make it on anybody who's listening to this. Go to graystokemedia.com and go to Chet's episode. We've got a page for Chet and it'll be there. Awesome. So I'll, I'll start with, I, um, I, I, a long time ago, I read this Harvard Business Review article on leadership, and it was about CEOs failing, actually, for the record. It wasn't for, it wasn't because here are the leadership principles. And they had something at the end of the article that said really nicely, succinctly, at the end of the day, leadership is about moving the human heart, right? Uh, when you're in a leadership position, you, you, you know, you're obviously, you can, you manage people, uh, you influence their paycheck and they, you can tell them what to do and things like that. But if you can somehow touch them to believe their hearts, touch them to believe that they are doing something more than they are capable of, they are contributing to a bigger cause. It, this, this thing that they're working on is bigger than their contribution. It makes a massive difference. And that connection is what I saw somebody that the industry understands really well. I saw Steve Jobs do that really well. He, he took phenomenal, he took awesome people, but inspired them to do phenomenal things that they didn't think they were capable of. And he didn't do it by saying, you know, do this, do this, do this. Obviously, he put unreasonable deadlines, but he inspired them on how they were changing the world. That was touching the heart, right? If you can do that in your own way, that is important. So the second part is be you, just because you can't be somebody else. Right, you have to live with your childhood issues, and you have to deal with them. And so, don't try to be somebody else. Right? Ultimately, you have to lead yourself before you can lead other people. And so, I always tell people that leadership is touching the human heart, but secondly, bringing the best version of yourself. Right, so that everybody can actually see it. And every leader is distinctly different. You just have to recognize what you're great at and what you're good at. And for things you're good at. Make sure you continue to work on them, but surround yourself with people who are great at what you're good at. And then what you're great at, continue doing a phenomenal job of it. I think that spoke to me so much when you were saying it is, you know, I've heard that message before, but there was something just about the way that you said it um, just now that made me realize like how those two could be so tied together. Like when we're willing to be our full self instead of like the cardboard cutout version of ourselves, we wish people believed about us. Right. But just be like the real ourselves. Doesn't that give other people permission to be their real self? And then or, or at least the the door is open to let them climb out behind their cardboard cutout version that they wish everybody believed. Right? And then when you're when it's actually the real you talking to the real them and you're talking about what really matters about this way you're trying to make an impact. You kind of like you get all the interference out of the way of the cardboard cutouts. You know? Yeah. And, and, you know, just I, I'll tell you the one and, and you don't have to design this. The one word that comes to mind is being vulnerable, right? Imagine yourself. You're leading yourself. You are completely vulnerable when you're having this conversation in your head. You always are. You're still going to be the CEO of your company. You're still going to be the leader. But making sure that some of your insecurities and your vulnerability comes out is actually makes it a better environment for other people to show up that way as well. Because if you don't get past those you will not be a high-performing team and you will not solve the, world, the problems that the world has, right? So I think, I think, I think just playing that, playing that just out always works. 
well, I appreciate that. I I feel like seriously, since we had that conversation, I was able to, so I'll try to be quick. I got my first investment banking job like 18 years ago on a mergers and acquisitions team for Citigroup. And I got there like not traditional route. Like I did not go to Harvard. I did not work at McKinsey or, you know, do an analyst job at Goldman or something. I got headhunted because I could talk to entrepreneurs and they wanted me to talk entrepreneurs into letting City sell their company. Right. Well, I've ridden off that for all these years since of like, that's like my credibility piece. I'm an art school dropout. I am not a Harvard grad. Right. And I dropped out to be an entrepreneur and got headhunted. Thank you. But I've spent a lot of the last however many years trying to like fit in with those guys that did go to an Ivy League school and did 10 years of Excel spreadsheets in a dungeon somewhere. Right. And guess what? I'm just, I'm not actually that guy. And it's <laughs> a lot of pressure to yeah. kind of try to pretend you are or like fit in yeah. with it. And like with this new business where we're doing like the Airbnbs at the action sports locations for, for our commercial real estate fund, I finally get to be like snowboarder artist finance guy. Yeah. And guess what? I actually am that. So there's no, there's so much less temptations behind my, to hide behind my cardboard cutout when I'm actually just trying to be me. If there's a way that you can figure out what you really love doing and one other small caveat and do it with people that you like, almost all problems become worth solving, no matter how hard they are. Right. But you've got to get that somehow get that combination. Such a good. Yeah, that's a, that's an ideal recipe. I'm going to need to like put that on a poster on my wall. So I think my next question is this. You learned so many things growing a company to the point that Google wants to pay $640 million to buy it from you. And here you are doing over it again. And you guys have accomplished so much so fast with data stacks. What do you feel like you've done that other people haven't done with, with all the success you guys are having at data stacks? I think uh, three things. That's a great question. And we don't, the, the general culture that we have in the company is we don't actually spend a lot of time thinking about the past. We are very cognizant of it, but we always are thinking of being present and thinking about the future. But I think there are two or three things we've uh, done really. So I'll give you one frame, which is we believed in our success before anybody else did. Right. We had a point of view. We inspired the market to believe in our success. And then we executed and have delivered the results. So that's one point of view. But I think the other is actually really simple. We focused on the community Right, we gave the community a big hug because if you're an open source company, you you are nothing without your community. The second thing is, you have to tell customers, you have to meet them where they are and take them into the future. That's the second thing we did really well. The third thing is, we got ahead of the cloud. There's some benefits to being late. You get a chance to do it better than everybody else did because you can learn from the mistakes, and we absolutely capitalize on it. But the most important thing is. We hired phenomenal people who believed in the mission, right? And that's, that is the recipe, I believe, for success. I feel like there's so many good things in there. Let, let's take these maybe in order. This idea of inspiring the market, what yeah. did that look like? What, what were some of those tactics? It was, it was, it was simple, right? We, we, we looked at where we were. We looked at, where the, we looked at where our customers were. We looked at our products and said, if we had a blank sheet of paper without having any constraints, what would we like it to be? What does, because a lot of people forget that for technology companies, architecture is DNA, right? You don't replace your DNA, right? You just, it's there with you. 
And so we had a chance to look at it and we said, how would we like it to be for the next 10 years, for the next five years? And we built a point of view, literally a couple of months after we joined, and um, started executing like crazy. And 12 months later, we had a product that the market really loved. Along the way, it is really important to go off and actually meet customers, tell them that we really care about them, and we are going to continue to solve their current problems. But more importantly, set them up for the future. And that bridge, like respecting where they are, but actually showing them how we're going to future-proof them, was something we did by inspiring them on where our vision, our mission was going to be. And, and how much of that was through the business press? How, many of that, how much of that was face-to-face, Zoom calls? What, what? You know, it was, we, we got into COVID five months after it joined. So there was, a, there was a couple of meetings we had that were face-to-face, but almost all of them were Zoom. Um, I think a lot of it was uh, hand-to-hand, one-on-one, right? Because I think I am a, I'm a massive believer in trying to get the press and the analysts to talk about it, but not until after you've talked to your customers. I think it's really important to have one. It was, I actually talked to, I remember the first eight weeks of me being on board, it was literally at least two or three customers a day, right? Going down the list and having the conversations, hearing them out because you don't want to, you have a point of view, right? You're you're a technologist, you have a point of view, but you don't want to believe in it unless you actually listen to the people that are using your technology to be successful. So so almost all one-on-one, but since then, since we've actually made this happen, we've made them successful, the new products have come out, we've hired a new team. Now you can see us turn up the, you know, turn up the volume, right? We're spending a lot of time with analysts. We're spending a lot because now we have something to talk about, right? And we've delivered. That's the, I think a lot of people forget that, that it's all about, hey, let me get some press and let me see how great I am on Twitter and things like that. All of those things are important. I don't want to dismiss them. But at the end of the day, you have to have revenue growth right? You have to put, there's got to be rubber has got to hit the road with revenue growth. And we are showing that every day of the week. I'm sure that relates to this, but, but let me know if there's anything different. This idea of going and give customers a big hug. What, yeah. what did that look like? What did that look like? So <laughs> that's a great question. So I was the, the then CIO of T-Mobile was a gentleman by the name of Cody Sanford. And I've known Cody for a decade and, and he's, he's great. He's just, he's awesome. He's one of my favorite CIOs. Um, and so I was talking to Cody about data stacks before and after I joined and he said, great, talk to these folks. So we, myself and two other people, we got on a call with them and there was a gentleman who is awesome. I've gotten to know him really well. Who's on the call. He said, I want you to know, we only know data stacks through your invoices. And I was, I knew exactly where I was at that moment. And I felt somebody had just taken a dagger and like, you know, like, put it through my heart and like rotated it, right? I mean, it's exactly the opposite of what I believe in every cell of my body, right? I mean, it is about them. We're here to serve them, right? That's what we do for a living. And so from there, we were, I was already doing customer calls, but then I made it a mission. I became back. I talked to the all hands about it. I said, this will not happen again, ever again. We are going to get intimate. And the word I used was intimate. We're going to get intimate with our, with our customers. We're going to give them a hug. We're going to find out what their problems are. And we're going to tell them our point of view, just to be clear. Because if, if you ask customers purely what they want, they'll say faster horses. They won't ask for cars. So it's a combination of where they are and where we think they should be because we extrapolate further out. But, but it, was, it was, we did give them a lot of hugs and we continue to give them hugs, right? But a true partnership with a customer, just not to be confused, 
is when you've earned the right to tell them they're wrong. So, I love this. In your mind, what does it take to earn that type of trusted advisor relationship where it's socially okay to tell them wrong? Like, what, what does it take to to have that not be awkward? I think two things. It's it's not that difficult. One is you've got to deliver. Can't be talk. They they're using your technology for a business reason. Those business benefits have got to be realized. If you don't have it, right? So number one, their KPIs, their project, their product, their app has to be delivered and it needs to be working really well. And they must, in their minds, believe that we were a part of their success. We cannot be completely their success, but we need to be part of their success. The second thing is you have to add value to them above and beyond the technology that you bring to the table, right? So they have to learn something about what they can do better and differently above and beyond the technology and the value proposition that we bring. As long as those two things are happening, you've delivered and you're having an abstracted conversation about what, you know, like distributed work. We are a distributed, we were a distributed com- work company from the beginning. We're an open source project. We started there. We've been distributed work forever. COVID didn't affect us at all. The first nine months of COVID, I spent a lot of time talking to CIOs about remote work and distributed work. That's value add above and beyond what data stacks tech value propositions. But if you bring those two together, it's golden, right? That's when you can say, listen, respectfully, we've seen this movie before. We, we work with hundreds of customers. I think you might be off on this. We don't know all the reasons, but I think you might be off on this. You may want to look at it again. And it always, if you do it respectfully, it always works. It's great. Uh, listen, I want to be respectful of your time. What, maybe for the last question here, you know, I know you get asked to speak, you get asked to be interviewed, all these things. What's either like a soapbox thing that you're just passionate about that, that you want to end with, or what's something that you don't get asked enough or, for, you know, for all the entrepreneurs and, and the people maybe earlier on in that entrepreneurial journey listening today, what would be the thing you'd want to leave them with on any subject? I'll, I'll say two things. One is the, the first one I've already talked about, which is actually maybe three. One I've talked about, which is, you know, leadership is fundamentally, it's just simply about touching the human heart, whether it is people in the press, whether it is analysts, whether it is you're talking to customers, whether you're talking to partners, or whether you're talking to prospective employees. It is about touching the human heart. That is something bigger than who they are. The second thing is believe in yourself believe in the concept you're doing like crazy, inspire people around you and then execute like hell. Because if you just do the first two, you're not doing it. You have to execute. The, the third one I would say is, and this I don't say very often, but let me, let me bring it up is, all of us have dark moments, right? Where we get up at two o'clock in the morning or three o'clock in the morning thinking about something. Um, just please realize everybody has those, right? So don't think you're special right? Everybody has those moments. And if you can find a partner, a business partner, a a personal relationship, a professional relationship with somebody you can talk to about those, it actually might be useful because 50% of the problem gets solved by you just externalizing it from your head, right? So, So A, don't think you're special. By the way, everybody has those issues, no matter how successful they are. They think about things at three o'clock in the morning and or and, and and the second, not or. And the second thing is find somebody that you can feel very secure with that you can talk to about it because that might solve the problem by itself. 
That's great. Well, listen, where are the best places for people to connect with you or to find out more about Datastax? And, and who's your ideal customer for Datastax? Anybody that's building a high-growth app. Anybody at all. And, it's, uh, and we have a lot of really small companies who have you know, two people and a dog starting out, and they are using Astra like crazy. And then we have very large companies, you know, Fortune 50 companies like FedEx and Verizon and others that are using us. So the entire spectrum, we, we've built the technology scale all the way through. So anybody who's building a high-growth app, this is the place. Datastacks.com for Datastacks. We, in addition to that, we also have a, a great podcast that we do. Jess, you, know, you and I have talked about it. You're, you're just brilliant. I'm going to take some tips on how I should do this better. Um, so Inspired Execution is the, is the podcast. It's available uh, everywhere where podcasts are available. So, Yeah, and I just want to give a shout out for that podcast. Chet has like the, such impressive people on there, like these titans of tech. And then like people from other spaces, like like head of the industry, people from Hollywood on there, from Orion Pictures and, and different things. And uh, anyways, if you're going to listen to another show, I would highly recommend listening to Chats, everybody. So the, the podcast is a blast, by the way. And I really like the, you know, the first season was all about, you know, friends of chat. And now we've gone into a different world and it just gets it's just getting better and better and better. And so you wait till season four comes out because it's going to be even better. <laughs> I love it. Thanks for doing this. You have to come on and give us an update. Maybe we should do this every year. Just have you back on every year and just tell us what's happened. You are, Jess, you're awesome. Thank you very much for having me. You bet. Thanks everyone for listening.